Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 38 of the Bible in 90 Days. Today, we're in Job 8 through 24. As you may remember from yesterday's episode, we are in the middle of Job and his friends interacting, Job in misery and his friends trying but completely failing of comforting him. We find ourselves with Bildad speaking in Job chapter 8. And he's one of Job's so-called friends. And I quote, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Bildad's essential argument is summed up in these words. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. In chapter 9, Job replies, Indeed, I know that this is true. But how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? Following this, and it's essentially the heart of the chapter, Job argues that the powerful God of heaven is irresistible doing as he pleases, and that there's no hope that Job can dispute his decisions. Then we find these words. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. In chapter 10, Job continues, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. He argues with God. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? And this is somewhat thematic of the chapter, which ends with Job wishing again that he'd never been born. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. And wishing now for just a few moments of joy before his death. Chapter 11 finds Zohar, another of the three friends, responding. And I quote, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? And his basic take? Well, it's pretty much summed up like this, and I quote, If you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, speaking of God, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, free of fault, You will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. After all, he concludes, and I quote again, The eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Chapter 12 finds Job replying again, clearly put off by his friend's insulting comments. And I quote, doubtless you are the only people who matter and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? Job's perspective is quite simple. 
In his, that is, God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. And a few verses down, what he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. Chapter 13 finds Job even more direct with his friends. After expressing his desire for a conversation with God, a theme, by the way, which shows up multiple times both in the chapter as well as in the book, Job says again, speaking to his friends, You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. In fact, the whole chapter works around these two themes. Let me plead my case with God and you are useless friends. One more brief quote, frightening me with your terrors. Chapter 14 continues Job's words, and I quote, mortals born of women are of few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away like fleeting shadows they do not endure. Do you fix your eye on them? And then he essentially asks God, can't you just leave people alone? It's at least better to be a tree because even when they're cut down, new shoots come up. But humans, when they die, it's over. And in the midst, the theme of making a defense before God comes up again. And now I'm quoting from the text. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Chapter 15 records Eliphaz's retort to Job, accusing him without pity. And I quote, You even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. And then a few lines down, what do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? And then again, a few lines down, why has your heart carried you away? And why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? Eliphaz then argues that Job's behavior is driven, driven by wickedness like so many others who've gone before him. And I quote, defiantly charging against him, that is God, with a thick, strong shield. And then this verse, some more lines down. For the company of the godless will be barren and fire will consume the tents of those who love, love bribes. And now we're in chapter 16. And Job here is speaking again. And I quote, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? After this, his attention turns to God, who, and I quote, has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. Then, near the end of the chapter, Job says, Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. 
My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. Chapter 17 finds Job continuing, and I quote again, My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. The chapter continues with Job asserting that, and I quote, God has made me a byword to everyone. And ending with pained questions, and I quote again, Where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? Chapter 18 records Bildad's reply. When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? The rest of Bildad's retort essentially argues, as we've heard before, and I'm quoting, the lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. That is the only reason, Job, you're suffering. It's because you've done evil. And then Job again replies, and this is chapter 19 now, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Job then continues to argue that God is responsible for his trouble and appeals to his friends for pity. He also includes these words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In chapter 20, we hear from Zophar again, and I quote, My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. His entire argument is summed up in these lines, and I quote, Surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. After Zophar reinforces his point over and over again, we find ourselves in chapter 21, hearing Job again. Listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. Bear with me while I speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. And what follows in the chapter is laid out in Job's words. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Job also asks, Can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? He then observes that one person dies in full vigor and another in bitterness of soul, lying side by side in the grave. Finally, he ends, So how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. 
Chapter 22 finds us listening to Eliphaz again. Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? He then makes three basic arguments. First, Job isn't pious. He's, and I quote, stripped people of their clothing, etc. Second, God is greater than you and acts in judgment. And third, and I quote now, submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. In chapter 23, Job replies again. Even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He asserts, and I quote again, My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept his way without turning aside. And yet, God, he says, stands alone. And who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. And then we find ourselves in chapter 24, our final chapter for today. And Job continuing, and I quote, Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? After all, the wicked keep getting away with evil. And, and I'm quoting again, God charges no one with wrongdoing. And yet, Job also observes, and I quote again, God drags away the mighty by his power, though they become established. They have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. He finally asks, If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? And that's all for today.